Hello and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Gordon Smith, and this week I'm joined by co-host Jay Shabbat to discuss the latest earnings from United Airlines and the state of play at European no-frills carrier EasyJet. Hey, Jay, how's it going? Hey, Gordon. Good to uh, speak with you again. How are things uh, out your way? Doing well. It's got a bit warmer here in Lisbon compared to when we spoke last week. But that, oh, that's that... good. Yeah, it's uh, likewise warmed up over on the other other side here. Uh, not still still chilly, but uh, not not quite as frigid. That's still the middle of January. Plenty yeah. of time. <laughs> plenty of time left to warm up. Um, we are recording Wednesday afternoon, uh, at least afternoon my time. You're still technically in the morning there, aren't you? Uh, we're um, yeah. It is as eleven o'clock, eleven o eight a.m. here, uh, East Coast time, U.S. Well, I wish you a good lunch, whatever lunch you may be having. Um, we are discussing, at least in the first part of this uh, episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge, the uh, latest earnings from United Airlines. And within the context of quite a busy week, Jay, we've got more earnings due Thursday uh, from some of the, the big US carriers. And we've had a, a splattering of other results come through this week from uh, international airlines. Uh, what was your top line take of the United results. Yeah, so we'll talk about United first. And as you mentioned, Gordon, we've got, uh, as we're, we're speaking here on Wednesday and uh, on Thursday, we've got a whole, uh, is we've got a, what, what did you call it? Uh, a super Thursday? <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have to borrow, to, to borrow a political term? Uh, you, we quite often hear about these super Thursdays. I think we've, uh, we've got one coming up tomorrow, at least as, right. uh, at the time of recording. Right, right. We've, it's uh, Southwest and American and Alaska. So uh, yeah, it's it's going to be going to be a, a fun a fun earnings day. But we have plenty to talk about today with United, and uh, so I'll give you a start out with some headline numbers. Uh, United earned a seven point seven percent, let's just call it eight percent operating margin. Uh, that's kind of the big number that we look at each quarter. And uh, was that better than Delta's? Um, not quite. So Delta was nine point seven, so full two points better. So ten versus eight. Now, United uh, tends to be a little bit uh, more seasonal than Delta in the sense that their, their winters are, are a little bit tougher for them. Delta has some more mitigating, you know, sunshine routes down to Florida, Caribbean, South America, that kind of thing. Uh, so not a huge surprise that United would come in a little bit under Delta. Um, I know they're trying real hard to uh, to win that gold medal to, <laughs> to surpass uh their foes in Atlanta, but uh, but not quite yet. Uh, however, saying all that, I think both of these carriers are are doing very well. They're both benefiting from a lot of very strong tailwinds on the demand side. One of them being premium demand, just kind of system wide. International has been excellent, particularly transatlantic is you know still, even though it's off peak season right now. I think overall, when we look at you know transatlantic over the course of last quarter and looking at the bookings ahead, it seems to be still just, you know, some of the best results from transatlantic that that the industry has ever seen. So there's that. They even, United even said that they're seeing so far in January, and it's just been a couple of weeks, but they've seen corporate bookings tick up quite a bit, and that's helped their yields um, substantially. They weren't ready to, you know, they kind of cautioned and uh, by, by they, they, they just, they wanted people to know that, Hey, it's only been two weeks. Let's not, you know, write this in ink yet, but, um, but, but, they, but they are, they are, it's a good sign. 
And uh, they even said domestic, which has been a concern uh, because of some of the losses that some of the low cost carriers have been reporting and suggesting that they might, you know, have suffered in the first quarter. Uh, we'll hear more about that in subsequent weeks, but uh, but there have been some concerns about domestic. But United said no, things things are fine domestic, um, and the numbers look good. I mean, yield they actually increased domestic capacity in ASA, ASM terms year over year by quite a bit in the fourth quarter, but the yields were still up, so that's a very good sign. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's uh, you know a little bit. I, I think it's overall a, a a nice nice story there for United. And uh, yeah, they've been pretty bullish on the basic economy product as well as the more premium products. So seems to be both ends of the of the consumer category working working in their favor at the moment. Yeah, they did say say that. I, I did raise, you know, to to me and in my in my mind that raised a little bit of a, a red flag there when they said basic economy is up. I mean, that's that's all good. The first thing I thought of though is that you know one thing that United has come under some scrutiny for some criticism for is that they may be expanding too fast and they may be too aggressive in trying to upgauge particular domestic aircraft. I mean, they're moving and we can talk about the whole Mac stuff in a little bit. That's obviously top of mind and, you know, people observing the industry right now. But that aside for a moment, they've been really pushing hard on this idea of, you know, we just got to fly the very largest aircraft on domestic routes, you know, no more 50 seaters, no more 70 seaters. We want, we want these big A321 Neos and these, you know, eventually max tens. Uh, and you know, you wonder if maybe because of that strategy, they have to rely more on basic economy. They have to discount more. I don't know, but, uh, that that's just kind of telling you that, you know, that, that little bit of a alarm bell kind of, uh, but, but, but it's, you know, even so it's, it's, it certainly didn't affect their numbers much. They say that they're just, you know, grabbing share from the spirits of the world and, you know, that, that all may be true as well. Uh, but, but yeah, as, as you said, you know, the, the, certainly on the premium side, it's, it's all, it's all good news, all upside. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty good story. Interesting. The, potential rebound uh, in corporate traffic. Yep. We've heard so much in the post-pandemic environment about leisure, about premium travelers actually being quite often leisure travelers as opposed to your traditional corporate business traffic. It will be really interesting to see if these can both come back in some sort of form. Uh, so you've got that high-end leisure traffic who have maybe got a taste of the, of the pointy end of the plane and want to continue that. And if we do see some more strength, if not a full recovery in, in corporate traffic, it could, it could make for quite a quite a lucrative picture. It really is. I mean, it's pretty amazing. If you said to me, you know, three, four or five years ago, oh, United's going to have, you know, and Delta and all these, you know, big airlines are going to have just excellent premium uh, demand. I would have said, oh, OK, that means, you know, corporate must be really strong. But corporate has actually been very weak. And it's it's funny how you know, leisure premium has become a big thing and a big driver. Even on, on Europe, United said that it's 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 not so much the London Heathrows and the Frankfurts of the world that are driving the premium games, or at least driving the demand games overall. It's places like where you live, <laughs> Gordon. It's, you know, your Portugal's, your Italy's, the places that have a lot of leisure traffic. And they said, by the way, that those markets um, have become year-round destinations for Americans, which is very interesting. Now, does that, you know, is that a new normal or is that just because the dollar happens to be very strong right now and 
the U.S. economy is pretty strong and the U.S. consumer is spending. It could be, yeah, it could be uh, a mix of everything. Is it a competitive thing? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of capacity has been taken out of the transatlantic market since 2019. You know, if you think of Norwegians of the world are, are gone. So we don't know for sure how uh, eternal that trend is, but uh, but it's been, you know, it's been going on throughout 2023 and it looks, you know, it's all systems go for 2024. So uh, no, you know, no signs of that abating anytime soon. That's really interesting. You mentioned the, the Heathrow's and the Frankfurt's, you know, that's obviously going to be weighted towards uh, business travelers. But you've got on the United Network looking at it, some really interesting destinations, particularly in Southern Europe. You know, they're going into into airports that might not have any other transatlantic scheduled service. I'm thinking the likes of Faro, uh, the airport on the on the Algarve and Portugal's south coast, but also some some secondary cities in in, in Italy. Uh, and the Spanish Canary Islands. These are destinations that traditionally you would have to you know, fly through London or fly through Madrid to access from the US. And uh, here you've got United, albeit on relatively small aircraft sometimes, coming in straight from, from Newark. Yep. And the, uh, yeah, they're just trying to squeeze as much juice out of that orange as possible. The, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the leisure, you know, leisure trend to Europe is just very, very strong. So might as well add as many routes as you can. And uh, yeah, they've been, I know, flexible with, uh, um, like you said, they've been, you know, using some of the smaller aircraft. They still have 757s and, you know, older depreciated 767s they can use and, you know, throw them on during the summer. And then in the, in the winter, you can put them somewhere else. So uh, they've, yeah, they've, they've done a, done a uh, you know, uh, more, let's say they've been more flexible and more dynamic in terms of their schedule management internationally so i think that's served them well interesting as well that you mentioned the growth ambitions for united and we'll come on to the the max in just a minute but uh scott kirby speaking to cnbc on tuesday of this week um discussing max tens and and other bits and pieces but there was a just a little nugget that came from him uh and he said i'll quote we're still going to be in absolute terms the fastest growing airline in the history of world <laughs> aviation. And yeah, th- th- this is a, a CEO who's usually you know, very friendly, very amicable, but he, he's not too big into hyperbole or big exaggerative statements like some other airline leaders are. For him, Kirby, of all people, to, to come up with this, I thought was was quite notable. Is that a... Uh, is, is that something that's going to be realized? The fastest growing airline in the history of world aviation? I think he's maybe playing a little fast and loose with the verbiage there, but <laughs> I think I think it's uh, you know I guess you can measure growth in many many different ways. I guess his point is is that they're just ordering aircraft like you know just like mad. <laughs> they're uh, you know and some of the reasons is because I, as I just said they still have a lot of you know seven five sevens and seven six sevens and eventually you know, older triple sevens that they're going to need to replace. So it's not, I'm not saying all of that is for growth, but some of it is just replacement. But, uh, but for sure, I mean, they are, you know, they, they do plan on, uh, on getting a lot of new airplanes. Uh, and, you know, in terms of what is that going to translate to in terms of ASM growth annually over the course of the next decade, uh, I don't think it's, you know, we're not talking double digit per year by any means. I think they're more conservative than that. They also, of course, have flexibility in a variety of areas. I mean, they certainly have, 
a very privileged relationship with Boeing where they can go back and say, okay, this year doesn't look as good as we thought. Can we adjust the deliveries, you know, here and there to, to lower or to grow a little slower than we would have liked or faster than we would have liked. So there's some flexibility there. There's, you know, things you can do on the utilization end where, you know, okay, I don't want to utilize the planes as much because there's not as much growth opportunity. There's just things you can do. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, it's, uh, they're, they're ordering a lot of planes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. And the earnings call and the, the, the wider details came with the backdrop of the continued issues around the Boeing three seven uh, seven the Boeing seven three seven Max, uh, with the Alaska incident at the start of the month and United's uh, or some of United's Max nines uh, implicated in the in the grounding. Scott Kirby was relatively outspoken again on that CNBC Squawk Box interview on on Tuesday morning uh, with regards to the uh, to the Max uh, and speaking more generally about Boeing, he said, and I quote, there's great mechanics, great engineers, and a great storied history, but they, i.e. Boeing, have been having these consistent manufacturing challenges, and they need to take action together. Um, United, I think, off the top of my head, has got around 235 MAX 10s, the largest MAX on order. Um, where, where, where do you think that leaves United and their, and their MAX future, Jay? Yeah, well, it's 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 almost ten percent of their entire Q1 capacity, so it's it's pretty significant. Not as you know, I think with Alaska, it's more like was it thirty percent? I want to say or something close to that. So, the the disruption over there at Alaska is even even more serious, and we'll find out more about that tomorrow. As we're you know, by the time you you uh, you listen to this, we'll uh, we'll have heard from Alaska. But uh, but sure, it's a, it's a big disruption uh, if. Now let me say this: If they, you know, if the Max Nine is back in the skies by January 31st, which I think that's what they're planning. I think they mentioned January 31st is kind of in their in their numbers. Um, I don't I don't think they that's a prediction or anything or a forecast. They just sort of said um, they gave some numbers about our you know our unit costs are going to go up by this amount, um, assuming that it's you know the plane is back in by January 31st. So if that is all that happens, I think it's going to be fine. I mean, Q1 is like, I mean, January is the slowest month of the year anyway, and, you know, not a big, big deal. Now, if it starts, if you get to the point where the max nines are not available in July and August, then, you know, you start to lose a lot of revenue. I mean, that starts to get very serious. And yes, you get some compensation from Boeing, but it never quite makes up for, for, uh, the, for the disruption. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the whole, industry faces very serious aircraft a very serious aircraft supply problem and it's you know it's boeing's issues with the max yes it's also uh pratt whitney's engine problems and you know there have been all sorts of other issues that have slowed down the the supply chain as well would be it you know labor shortages or you know this and that you know limited maintenance capacity so this is uh it's, it's a very serious problem um, and there's really no easy answers. I mean, there really, there's only two essentially aircraft suppliers in the world. Um, they both have their issues. And, uh, so, you know, the airlines have to deal with it now, as we've, you know, as, as I've kind of written about before, uh, you do have to keep another thought in the back of your mind, that being, 
when you do have aircraft supply very constrained, it's also going to help you on the revenue side. So I think there's some validity to the thesis that the airline industry is more profitable than it would be or that it would have been in 2023, say, because of all these supply side shortages. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a controversial thing to say because no, no airline CEO will say, oh, this is, you know, these, these supply side, these aircraft problems are wonderful. But uh, collectively, you know, industry-wide, I think it has kind of put a floor under capacity and lifted yields and, and you know, in turn profits. So you could take, take that as you will, but. <laughs> yeah, but does the fault line, Jay, not start to appear when you've got some airlines who are less exposed than others and are able to make headway on their competitors? For sure. I mean, it's not going to affect everybody equally. So if you're Spirit or if you're Go First in India, which had to declare bankruptcy because, of, you know, at least partly because of their, you know, GTF engine issues, uh, absolutely. You know, whereas if you're, you know, you're EasyJet, we'll talk about them in a little bit, and you don't have the GTF engines or if you're and you don't have any Boeing planes, you don't have any Maxes, well, then, you know, you're a little more, more comfortable. But uh, But still, I mean, I think even with with an Airbus customer, um, e e even with an Airbus customer using CFM, CFM engines, there have, there have been some issues at least. I mean, some frustrating delays, some, uh, you know, but, but yeah, to your point, sure, it's going to affect some airlines more than others. Indeed, indeed. Just for full context, um, Kirby said, I think we're near the end game in terms of the, uh, the, the resolution to the MAX uh, 9 issue. He said the, the FAA, to their credit, has been there, in there with us, in the weeds, on the weekends, on the late nights. I think we're near the end game on that and that the aeroplane will be safe. Uh, but he did add that he was disappointed in the manufacturing challenges that do keep happening at Boeing. Conscious of the time, Jay, just a couple of very quick thoughts from you. Um, the MAX 10, Kirby suggested that there were alternative plans potentially in the works at United for a, a future fleet that doesn't involve the MAX 10 at all. What's your, what's, your, what's your top line take on that? Well, I, th I think it wasn't quite so dramatic. I, th I think my, my takeaway was that he was really just saying, you know, look, we were supposed to get these things five years ago. They're still not here. They're still not certified by the FAA. So at some point, you know, we were building a plan, uh, you know, a schedule plan for 2025. Uh, even maybe, maybe they're even starting to think about 2026. And we just can't we just can't include the Max 10 in those plans anymore because we have no idea when they're going. I don't think that means they're going to you know they plan to dump the order and run off the Airbus. That's not really going to help them get any planes any faster anyway. I mean Airbus is sold out for for a long time. So uh, I think that's more what it was. They just you know they're very frustrated that they can't you know they're just not going to have that plane, and it's uh, anytime soon. And uh, yeah, I mean it's a great. It's going to be a great plane. I mean, economics-wise, it's just it's a you know fantastic product. Um, but who knows? <laughs> Is it going to be twenty twenty-five? Maybe you know. I I don't know if if the thing will get cert certified this year. Um, you know, I think the hopes are that it will be sometime this year. But maybe it is twenty twenty-five. And uh, it's I don't think it would shock anyone if it was twenty twenty-six at this point because everything has been so delayed. Uh, so yeah, that's now they did say uh, on the wide body side that they kind of teased uh, or you know sort of a veil threat that hey we we really like the A350 for our future triple seven replacement 
And, uh, you know, that was kind of a, I think, message to Boeing, like, hey, get your act together if you want us to order the 777, you know, X or <laughs> some more 7879s. So, yeah, th I think that's, you know, where they may have been a little more, you know, sending a message to Boeing. Uh, by the way, just on a completely different note, sorry, Gordon, I just I neglected to mention that uh, United, unlike Delta, does expect a loss in the current quarter, in the January to March quarter. Some of that is Max 9 um, problem. Some of that is unrelated. I think it's just, again, they're seasonally, Q1s are just terrible for uh, for East-West heavy airlines like United and, you know, that's uh, so, so I, I wouldn't worry about, they say they're going to have, you know, full year 2024 is looking, looking just fine. So I, I just wanted to, you know, throw that in there. So everybody's aware, you know, when they see a Q1 loss United in a couple months, they don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> Not always the most representative quarter of Jay, the year. I'm sure you're right. Agree. Jay and Gordon told me they were doing well and they're posting losses. <laughs> I, would be, I would be more panicked when, uh, you know, when you see JetBlue's Q1 loss than when you see United. Well, really appreciate your insights as always. Uh, Jay, we will be back after a very short break. You're listening to the Airline Weekly Lounge. When we return, we will be discussing the uh, European low-cost carrier EasyJet. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm Gordon Smith, and this week I'm joined by co-host Jay Shabbat. We've been discussing United's earnings and the, the various themes and sub-themes from that. We're pivoting across the Atlantic now, maybe to Faro, maybe to one of those secondary Italian cities that United seem to enjoy and their passengers seem to enjoy, uh, to discuss EasyJet, the UK-based low-cost carrier with, uh, I think they've got Switzerland and they've got some fleet registered in Austria, uh, but they really are a, a truly pan-European airline nowadays from their humble roots at London Luton Airport back in the early 90s, doing shuttle flights up to Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen in Scotland. They truly are uh, a huge force to be reckoned with in the in the European airline scene. Uh, and we had some numbers out from them this week, Jay. What was your uh, what was your top line take? Yeah, and Gordon, before I before I read the numbers, I, uh, I just wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm guessing that you have flown EasyJet quite a bit in the past being from the UK and living in Portugal. Any uh, any comments about how they compare to other airlines, or uh, what it's you like really, them? You not like them? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I spoke to Tony Anderson, who was EasyJet's number three employee, like the third ever employee, way 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 back in the nineties. He joined as uh, their marketing guru. Uh, Stelios, the, the EasyJet founder, uh, recruited him from Thomas Cook and, and British Airways, and said, right. We've got a we've got an interesting business plan. We like what's happening with Southwest in the U.S., and we've had some some major deregulation in Europe. It's it's ripe for the picking. Uh, how about it? And uh, the rest is history. He does have a great book as well. Um, Egypt Rising is the is the book. Strongly recommend that if you want to do some background reading on it. But yes, um, I discussed with him how he thought Egypt was positioning itself in 2023, 2024. This is not the lowest of low-cost carriers. It's not a ULCC. Um, I would argue Wizz Air, Ryanair are, are more in that category, although even Ryanair have moved up quite considerably in terms of customer service and in terms of uh, perceptions around what they what they offer. Um, EasyJet, you know, if you look at the, you know, they're flying into Charles de Gaulle in Paris. Uh, they're not flying out to Bouvet or one of the other 
sort of quasi Paris airports. They're flying into places that people actually want to go and are frankly more expensive for airlines to operate in and out of. Their customer service is not perfect, but it's not bad at all. And their crews are professional, their planes are clean. And you know, if you blindfolded me and said, this is a British Airways flight from London to Milan, or this is a EasyJet flight from, from London to Milan, honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. Um, the only difference, if I'm being really, really picky nowadays, is British Airways on their short haul routes within Europe have brought back uh, a crumb of catering. And I use the word crumb deliberately because some of the, the flapjacks and little cakes that they're offering are minuscule. Uh, there was a joke floating around the, the aviation community when it was uh, rolled out late, uh, last year that if you, if you collect all five flapjacks, you might actually get one that you can, uh, you can eat in one sitting. <laughs> collect them all. But, uh, and, yeah. then, and then the question, Gore, would you pay extra for that, those little flapjacks? Or <laughs> uh, it all adds to the, the impression that you're getting something a, a little bit above the, above the norm. But uh, yeah, short answer to a short question, where does EasyJet position itself? I would say above Ryanair and Wizz Air, certainly within Europe, um, and not actually a million miles below British Airways on their entry Europe stuff. But uh, Jay, tell, tell us about the numbers. What, was, uh, what were the headline figures? Sure, yeah. Uh, so they... Um... They what they did is easy, just a little bit strange. They only do full earnings releases every six months, and now every quarter they'll they'll give you their headline numbers and a trading update, quote unquote. Um, but they haven't, as far as I know, they did not do a call this morning. Sometimes we get uh, here at Airline Weekly, we'll get we'll get the transcripts, you know, a day or two late if they're you know if there's a private call with with investors. So. They, they may have done something um, that we haven't seen yet. But in any case, we do have some headline numbers. And EasyJet, uh, once again, they did lose money in the calendar fourth quarter. So we're talking October, November, December here. Negative uh, 7% operating margin. Um, for them, that's, that's okay. Like that's manageable. Um, they did negative 8% in, in the same quarter of 2022, just for context. We don't know what they did in the same quarter of 2019 uh, because they never used to give quarterly figures. We only saw the, the, the six, six, they only gave six month uh, operating margins for uh, back then. So we don't really know. But in any case, the story with EasyJet is much like it is for a lot of these short haul European carriers. You lose money in the winter and you hope you make it back in the summer. And if you're Ryanair, which even they, you know, there'll be some winter winter periods of the winter where they'll lose money, but they just make incredibly strong margins in the summer that, you know, the end of, on balance, they wind up doing, just having a great year. Now, EasyJet, a little bit less so. They usually make money for the full year, but their margins are, you know, it's, it's, they, they can use some help. And like you said, Gordon, they're kind of a, you know, a in-between type airline where they're not as low cost as Ryanair, but they're not, you know, playing, they're certainly not playing in the same leagues as British Airways in terms of, you know, extracting revenue premiums. They do have some interesting strengths. You know, one of them is they have excellent slot positions. They have a portfolio of, you know, I think they're the biggest slot holder at London Gatwick, which is their busiest airport. Uh, yep. And they have, um, I know they're big in, well, I think I have it in front of me here. They, so their second, um, busiest 
airport is Geneva. Uh, Geneva. Yeah. yeah, Geneva. Um, so Switzerland is big, and Switzerland's nice. You know, Geneva. It is a market where you can extract revenue premiums, and it's. Oh, a I, I, of- I, I paid thirty euros for a pizza in, in Geneva. You don't need to tell me about <laughs> extracting revenue. Yeah, well, I'm actually a certified IATA instructor, so they they used to send me to Geneva. That's where they're headquartered. And, <laughs> and I've been there many times, and I, I know what things cost there. I remember oh, yes. you know, there, there was a time in my life when I was, you know, trying to save money by going to McDonald's, but the, not even that worked. <laughs> no, no, I mean, they have the I think it's the Economist Big Mac Index, which yeah, yeah, right, right, <laughs> com- com- compares how expensive the Big Mac is around the world. Trying to use a sort of common currency, if you like, and ain't, ain't cheap. Even right. my uh, my beloved box of McNuggets, which can sometimes be my go-to after a, a heavy night, is uh, not cheap there either. It was, it was eye-watering, but I, it, it forces you to to think twice about that junk food at least. <laughs> For sure. But then, but, but uh, then yeah, nice, yeah. I was just going to say, if you, you know, if you're EasyJet, the nice thing about operating in an expensive market is that Ryanair has no interest in it. So you kind of <laughs> uh, you kind of have it to yourself. So it's nice. So I think that's why you know Switzerland works very well for yep. EasyJet. Um, Milan is actually their Milan Malpensa is actually their third busiest route. I'm looking at second quarter numbers from this is from uh, Sirium Dio, uh, and then London Luton's number three and Bristol's number four. So you kind of get an idea of where they have a lot of their capacity. Um, Italy is, you know, I think we've talked about Italy before on earlier podcasts with, with Ned. Uh, how you know, uh, low cost carriers just love you know, ripping at the carcass of the old Alitalia. And oh, yeah. Ryan, yeah. Ryanair is actually, that's, Italy is Ryanair's largest country market, believe it or not. Uh, so, you know, U- UK is still number one for EasyJet. Italy's number three. France is actually number two for EasyJet in terms of country markets. So they're, as you, I think you said earlier, like they fly to Charles de Gaulle and they're big in, I think, Nice. I think I, I flew them to Nice once, actually. It was the only time I was ever on an EasyJet flight. Um, this is all just coming back to me now. It was Geneva to Nice actually? So hmm. there you go. And um, so they have, yeah, they have like a very interesting network. Uh, you also alluded earlier that they, uh, I think you you may have mentioned it to me. I can't remember if we if this was you were talking to me just earlier before we started recording, Gordon. But uh, but they have been growing a lot to the Middle East. Yes. And um, they actually did say something about that. If you you may have that in front of you. I do. Um, yeah. They they expect an H one. Uh, they expect the H1 loss to reduce year on year, but that's despite around a 40 million pound direct impact from the Middle East conflict. Um, so in real terms, in terms of EasyJet's operations, that's Israel, that's Jordan, that's Egypt, obviously still flying to Egypt, but they, they alluded in their statement today that demand has softened, people being spooked maybe about visiting the, the wider region, even though the, the, the flights are still running. Yeah, and then they they said something that I, I wish they did a call because I would love to hear some more on this. But uh, maybe we can uh, get in contact with them and try to find out. But uh, they did say that demand, quote unquote, demand and bookings have recovered strongly from late November. So I think, um, and I don't. Uh, they're, they're obviously. Uh, I don't know how you know specific they're they're talking about there, but I think Egypt for them has because I've heard this from other rounds. I think Egypt is okay. I think that's recovered. Um, Israel, I don't think they're serving uh, yet. They haven't re- restored service there. I don't know offhand about Jordan, um, but EasyJet. But but Egypt is a very big market. I mean, all those Red Sea resorts. And um, yeah, it sounds like that's that's kind of. I don't know if it's back totally to normal, but they, it seems to be doing okay. 
Interesting. And uh, we're due to see quite a few airlines return to to the Israeli market in in Tel Aviv over the next few weeks. I think actually, as we're recording, I think Air France is due back in there today. Lufthansa, uh, the Lufthansa Group, I should say, rejoined the the, the Tel Aviv market around the 8th of of, of January. Uh, The likes of Virgin Atlantic, British Airways, uh, Ryanair, Wizzair and others due to join before the end of March. So really interesting to see how that shapes up. Uh, and I think it's also important, Jay, to, to highlight EasyJet holidays. Uh, that's been a real driver of uh, higher yields for them. For those that might not be too familiar with the, the concept of a British package holiday or a more general European package holiday, this is when you book the flight and your accommodation and sometimes the transfer from the airport to the accommodation. All is one uh, package, hence the name. And this is something that EasyJet traditionally hadn't really been involved in at all. It was deemed to be too complicated, and there were big names like Thomas Cook who would who would do that better. Uh, now they're seeing some some real growth. Um, looking at the the numbers, EasyJet Holidays as a division continues to expect upwards of thirty five percent customer growth year on year in this financial year, and that has a, a real impact on the on on the airline as well. Absolutely, yeah, they totally pressed the right button on that. That was a very smart decision of them to develop the holiday packaging division because that's been really profitable for them and growing very fast. I have here that, uh, and sorry, this is I converted everything to US dollars, um, but they they said uh, $40 million profit for EasyJet holidays last quarter. Um, so I don't know what that is uh, in pounds. We can probably figure that out pretty quickly. But in any case, it's they, they're doing, you know, they're doing very well with that. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's helped them a lot. So, you know, and I said, I mentioned earlier that they have, you know, they, they have the CFM engines, they don't have the GTF, so they don't have that issue. Um, they've been also doing a lot of upgaging to the largest Airbus narrowbody, the 321neo. Um, I don't think they've ordered any long range or extra long range. You can, someone can correct me on that. I don't know if you know. Don't, 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 don't think so. I, I think I, so, I, right? I think they're I, kind I, of. I'm pretty sure they're getting, getting rid of the, the 319, or they're at least uh, yes. phasing that out. So it will be all 320 and 321, uh, which is which is interesting, especially for those big, busy hubs like Gatwick and, and Charles de Gaulle and others. Yep, yep, where you have the slot constrictions, stop restrictions, you can, yeah, you can you can definitely fill those. Uh, so, yeah, they're, um, so, yeah, definitely um, they have some, some work to do to get their margins up. Uh, you know, they've had... And, and I don't want to take this comparison too far, but uh, they're a little bit JetBlue-like in the sense that they operate from very difficult, congested airports. You know, operationally speaking, they're difficult, uh, and that adds to their cost. They're also like JetBlue, for that matter, in the sense that they uh, rely somewhat on yield premiums. You know, they're they're not the yeah they, you know, they're not the low cost leader, so they have to get some kind of premium there. Um, you know, very good on the ancillary side. They uh, have a very privileged relationship with Airbus, just like JetBlue does. Um, I did want to, before we go, I did want to highlight a couple of three differences that I think will be interesting for some of our listeners. Um, the the low the low cost market in Europe is is very different than the low cost market in the United States, and it's different in at least three ways. Three three ways in particular, I just want to highlight here. Yeah, one of them. And then, um, yeah, we can, you know, follow up with any further questions anybody has, uh, you know, feel free to send us emails or whatnot. But uh, so, so first of all, you have to remember that in Europe, 
the stage lengths, the, the distances of the journeys are much shorter. So what is it? I mean, are you, uh, Gordon, is it, is it Glasgow? Did you grow up in, uh, is that where you, what's your home airport? Uh, Aberdeen Airport. In Aberdeen. The, oh, okay. in, in, in That's the an oil town, right? It is an oil town. Yeah, the, the, the Houston of, of Europe, it was called in the Houston heyday. Houston of Europe. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that uh, that you were from there. So anyway, how long does it take to, like, if you got on a Lisbon to Aberdeen, is that, I mean, that can't be, was it an hour, two hours? Uh, Lisbon's a bit of an anomaly because it's just so far in the southwest of Europe. But you're absolutely right, Jay. The sector lengths within Europe, you know, if, you, if you're more than two hours, it feels like long haul. Yeah, right, right. So there, so it's so many of these flights. The vast majority of these flights are one, one hour, one and a half hour, two hours. So it's very, it makes really little sense to do anything premium in your cabins to have like a first class. So this is why you know, even your British Airways and Lufthansa's of the world. I mean, you know, they're they're little flapjacks, notwithstanding, they they can, they really, it doesn't do them any good to offer any kind of you know. Uh, more amenities than the low cost carrier guys. So, I mean, the, the seat pitch, I was on a Lufthansa flight not too long ago within Europe and the seat pitch is no different than EasyJet, maybe slightly different. I don't know, but, um, it's, it's very much, uh, everyone really has to run a low cost model when you're doing short haul within Europe. And that's why there's been so much pressure to, oh, we got to form a new airline. You know, we can't be Iberia anymore. We got to be Iberia Express. We can't be Lufthansa anymore. We got to be Eurowings. We can't be Air France anymore. We got to be Transavia. So there's just this like constant push to, uh, you know, just operate very, very ultra low cost. On well, it, keep, it keeps the unions happy as well, or happier, yeah. I should say. And that's a, right, and that's a good segue because to my second point is that the labor uh, situation is very different in the U.S. than it is in Europe. And this may strike some people as odd, but it's actually the unions are actually much weaker, the airline unions in Europe. And that may sound a little odd. I mean, you might, you know, and look at me and say, hey, Jay, what didn't didn't the Air France pilots, uh, you know, uh, strike Air France, uh, you know, a billion, cost them a billion dollars worth of losses during the 2010s. And that's that's all true. And there are individual airline unions that have a lot of influence on individual airlines. But if you look at a Ryanair, even an EasyJet, for that matter, that can, you know, just operate multiple unions and play them off one another, you know, across different countries. And you can't do that in the U.S. And, you know, if you look at Lufthansa, you know, every it seems like every week they're starting a new low cost airline. It's like it's like, you know, this week it's Eurowings and then, you know, German wings and Discover wings and Happy Wings. And I just made that last one up. <laughs> Spin the wheel. Which one? Which yeah. name will it be next? But uh, no, you're absolutely right. You got Lufthansa City Line, Lufthansa City, Lufthansa, Eurowings, Discover. Edelweiss. So you start to get into, you know, Swiss Edelweiss. And, uh, you know, it's, it goes on and on. So you can't do that in the United States. Like, forget it. You know, Alpo will stop that, in, uh, you know, before in a second. So. There's that. And then the third thing, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long about this, but uh, the third thing is that Europe, Europe's airline market is, is it's, it's a lot more seasonal than it is in the U.S. You can, you know, in the U.S., you always have Florida, you always have the Caribbean. Um, and again, those are longer stage lines if you're flying them from New York or Chicago, whatever, you know, typical markets where, where you, where you go, to, go to places like that. But, but, you know, Spain and Portugal, I mean, those places are still chilly in the winter. They're still summertime destinations, really. They still peak in the summer. So if you want things that peak in the winter, you start, I mean, you can start going, you push yourself into Middle East. And this is why, you know, they've had EasyJet and 
Wizz Air and even to some extent Ryanair have, have grown a lot to the Middle East is, you know, you get a little, little bit better there in, in the off peak. But even there, you know, and even the Canarians, you, you would know better than me, Gordon, but I think even the Canary Islands, like that's more of a summer destination, isn't it? If you're really, really desperate for winter sun, and I use the term sun quite loosely, uh, the Canaries is your, is your best bet within Europe. Uh, because you know, it's it's you know, it's off the coast of of Morocco. Uh, it's 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 only arguably part of Europe through geopolitical terms. In terms of the map, uh, it's very much closer to to Africa. So you're you you you're very far south with the Canaries. Uh, less so Madeira. Cape Verde is also very popular. But you're absolutely right, Jay. It's it's the Middle East. It's Turkey um, and its other destinations much further. A field if you're looking for that winter sun but uh so 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 much more we could discuss but time is against us sadly i'm sure we've got plenty more that we can share for next time jay thank you as always for lending us your your expertise both on united and on easyjet you've been listening to the airline weekly lounge uh, don't forget you can always contact us via email my email address is gs at skift.com that's g for gordon S for Smith at skiff.com and J can be reached at JS, that's J for J and S for Shabbat at skift.com. Jay, you'll be joining us next week. Oh, for sure, Gordon. Thanks. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be back and do it again in a week. Absolutely. Plenty more earnings results to tear through as well. So oh, yeah. plenty to discuss. Wherever you're listening, thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.